listening to Radio Owl's Nest. The songs of Martin Page, all day, all night, forever. So grab a cup of tea, settle down with us in the Owl's Nest. Well, we did a special with Diane Poncher, uh, my manager, not too long ago, and uh, it was such a success. The Queen called in, Bootsy was thrilled with it, uh, all my neighbours were very, very happy. We're going to do another one, so uh, we're just waiting for her to... Uh and there she is, perfectly on time, the old doorbell. Diane Poncha, welcome back to Radio Owl's Nest again. It's good to be back. We had so much fun the first time, I think, yeah. didn't we? Did we? Yes. I mean, I did. Did you? I did too. I mean, uh, we had so much to talk about that when we reached like three hours, we thought we've got to do another show. So <laughs> I know. You're back and... Um, it's really nice. I'm going to sound very professional, but it's really a joy to have you here in the studio with and me. It's a joy to be here. I hope all of and you... And reminisce. There you go. I hope all of you out there have heard uh, the first special because I'm, we're not going to go back over that again. So you, if you want to find out what we talked about, you're going to have to go back to listen to the first special with Diane Poncher. We got to a point in my career, I believe, Diane, if you have to, if I can remember right, when I was, was working with Earth, Wind & Fire and you got me with Maurice White. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you're not going to say so much this show are you i'm gonna have to work bloody hard on this um but that was a very 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 special time it was wasn't very it? special um you were working with maurice in the studio and excuse me she's got nose. allergies it's not cocaine yeah. it's not cocaine yeah. <laughs> um anyway maurice and Earth, Wind & Fire, they never let anybody... I mean, they were known not to let anybody in the studio when they were working in there. Yeah, that's and right. And yeah. you and Brian were allowed in there, in the inner circle. You know, the doors closed with us out. So. I, re I remember when I said to you that... Um Brian and I were going to be in the studio recording yeah. the, that song Magnetic and yeah. a, another song I wrote with John Lend who Diane put me with a song called Touch yeah. that you we thought that was normal and you said it's not normal yes it was a very very unusual thing um, you know then all the time I worked there I didn't know anybody who got to go in there and I, re I remember that uh when we were in there with them, it, uh, Diane was right. It was like the doors were shut down and we felt like we were in a special place. And uh, another thing I remember that, and I think Diane warned me, is that Earth, Wind & Fire were on a different time zone to the most of us, weren't they? Yeah. Well, Maurice, at least. Uh, he was known for being late. Worse than me. He, was, <laughs> he, he would actually set his watch ahead, you know, uh, no, I guess back. So that he thought it was later than it actually was <laughs> to help him get there, not as late as he would have uh, otherwise. And as Diane pointed out, you know, I was a we, Brian and I were like perfectionists with being disciplined and being on time and everything. And uh, we used to arrive when they said, you know, studio time. We're starting at eleven a.m. We'd get there at eleven, and I swear to God, none, none of Earth, Wind, and Fire walked into. There was no way Maurice was going to no. be there before noon. Five o'clock, you know, yeah. in the eve in the afternoon, and we'd say we'd been here from eleven. They just looked like a, look at us, like we were crazy. They would always say a good time, eleven. 
but that meant five or six. Yeah, not to you. You had your <laughs> ties on and your briefcases. Very disciplined. <laughs> that's right. Well, actually, that's true. When we first came around, we were we bought our brief briefcases with cassettes, but we learnt pretty soon that musicians and uh, don't really respond to uh, businessmen walking in with a, with a suitcase and uh, playing cassettes. I think <laughs> Diane said, "You look too much like uh, accountants. Stop this." Yeah. We had fair with a page on our backs, you know, and our we were re- re- very much into trying to impress people but it was such a learning process with earth wind and fire and i remember coming back to diane's house um because that's where brian and i were staying and this is when our career was just beginning really to erupt i'd had we built the city in the charts and um things were and with and these dreams two number ones and here i was with earth wind and fire and they were cutting magnetic my first song your first song on your own Another thing, tell me about the publishing things that used to happen with Earth, Wind & Fire, because we were, we were worried, right? right? Well, it, it was a, a, a sort of a normal thing at the time when a very, very successful artist would take your song. And in, in Maurice's case, he was, he was one of those people. He would take usually like half the publishing. If he cut the song, the writer, the idea was, would be grateful enough to have his song cut his or her song cut by an artist that was guaranteed pretty much to sell and make money uh, for that writer. So he would take half the publishing. That was the privilege of getting a song cut by a successful band. And Maurice uh, did this practice quite nor- you know, regularly. But in Martin's case... Um, yeah, he didn't do it. He didn't. We didn't even have to ask him not to. He yeah. just didn't automatically do it with you for some reason. Yeah. I think maybe it had something to do with his uh, sort of attachment to you. He seemed to sort of take you under his wing, didn't he? Yeah, well, oh, it, he did, actually. We did connect very deeply. And over the work I did with him after that uh, Electric Universe album, I did do... He took me with him to to do Barbara Streisand and Neil Diamond and I did his solo record with Brian yeah. and he took me and Brian on as associate producers on a solo record which which was fantastic and uh, and uh, Diane was always making me aware that um, Maurice was a gentleman yeah. um, and that um, the respect he was showing me and Brian wasn't uh, always what other writers would get so we felt like we were in the inner, inner circle there. Very much so. Uh, but that was an incredible period for me and I, I still talk about Maurice being such an influence to me it's a whole podcast talking about um how, how he affected me At the same time i was working with bernie Taupin and and maurice white i was i was getting the best education i could just talking there though diane about um you knew so much about publishing that me and brian and myself didn't know that we'd sit in a car and diane would have to draw a cake and pie. <laughs> a cake, a pie of a, a pie, and show <laughs> us. I'm still having difficulty with this. Um, uh, uh, how all publishing royalties were um, being divided, and what it meant to be, um, you know, uh, mechanical royalties and uh, performance royalties. And I'm still dicey. Publishing writers. I'm dicey on it now. But can you remember what you were teaching us? We've just looked at you like, yeah, all right. Yeah. Well, it, it was important that you understood what you were, you know. Uh, what the deal was or you know so uh and me being a very detail oriented yeah um i would just do it in a pie because it was very illustrative you'd, you'd all it did was make us hungry <laughs> yeah. we said let's go to big bobs <laughs> you just draw a pie and you draw how it's how and shade it in and draw how it's yeah. 
you know, with little lines to what it, it just made more sense. And for the writers, for the writers that are out there, yeah. uh, Di, I, I just just tell them what they should basically expect uh, as a writer with with royalties. If you can, as some well, point. I mean, if you mean ha- how it works, I mean how it works. That's really what I mean. Yeah. If you picture the whole song, um, uh, do it like a pie, uh, draw a circle, and and put a line through it, uh, and one half is the publisher's share, and the other half is the writer's share, and so there's two ways of looking at it. You can look at it like they tend to do in England. It's a hundred percent, and if you have a sixty forty deal, that's 60 40 of a hundred you know uh, out of the hundred percent uh here it's sort of uh how much they do it mm. by yeah. the publisher's uh share or so um 50 percent of the publisher's share is really a quarter of the pie right so uh it can be confusing that's why i used to draw those those circles but over here in in the u.s at least it's people m- tend to more think of it more in terms now of the, the English deal we had. I think it was 60 40. It was 60 40. And, and, and not a, good. And not good. And a good deal would have been early on 70 30 or 80 20, right? 75 25 would yeah. have been great, yeah. but for, for at least 70 30, I would have thought, you mm-hmm. know. But 60 40 was that's what I meant in yeah. the first, uh, the first thing we did uh when i said your deal was very publishing favorable with, with, with to yeah. the publisher and, yeah. and whenever there was a question it was always more towards their favor so um, i knew i knew and brian did as well that when we met with diane we thought this really is the the, uh, the ingredient we need so that we can relax on writing our songs and, and trust in somebody and of course management you know it's really important if you have a great friendship and trust and we did a trial period uh, and i think songwriters should know this that a manager doesn't have to instantly sign you to a form you know if you really if the manager really wants to work with you they'll prove themselves without signing at first that you can all work together and that's really what happened with us yeah well we've certainly worked that way yeah. some people will do like a little contingency thing yeah. they'll, they'll do maybe like a six-month period and yeah whatever uh, I, I don't know how they do it now no. that, that was, was another yeah. great thing with ASCAP the and in England you have PRS but here you have BMI and ASCAP which are the performing rights societies and uh, Diane was very very uh, instrumental in getting us to ASCAP and getting us uh, getting our uh, business in order well uh, and I was learning a lot then too I mean I remember sitting in Todd Brabeck's office at ASCAP mm-hmm. uh, and because ASCAP had they don't do it this way anymore, but they had a very strange way of uh, figuring out your royalties where it would get spread out over the year in like four different payment periods uh, instead of in all at once in the period in which you right. earned it. Now, Todd Brabeck, uh, who was he? He was like the, the, I don't remember his title, but he was the head of... A knowledgeable boy. ASCAP. Yeah, yeah he, was, he was the head guy. Yeah. In the LA office, um, and he knew all about, of course, how it all worked. Mm-hmm. So he would explain to me how to anticipate what your next royalty was going to be based on a, a number of factors. And at the time, it made I made sense out of it. Uh, yeah. But I remember you, I really had to concentrate every time I wanted to f- to figure something like that out. Mm-hmm. 
like I was learning all over again. Yeah, but you, you were like that with contracts as well. And uh, while Brian and myself glazed over looking at you, and uh, you would always uh, be aware of what our songs were doing. We, I mean, the times that, you know, we lived off of our royalties. Yes. And it was pretty magical that every quarter, you know, uh, you, you'd see rewards for what you'd yeah. done. I mean, it's not that, that way now so much, but we were in the, the really the prime time when music and radio was really radio. powerful. Yeah. Airplay. Yeah, and I felt very con very confident uh, with Diane because I knew even if the royalties uh, didn't arrive on time, or she would query. And she took another thing I got to say here is that every song we wrote, Brian and instrumentally me myself, Diane took um, details of and absolute and, and instantly um, got them copywritten. I got them copy. Well, that was part of the deal with yeah. wh whoever the publisher was. Yeah. Um, they didn't always do it, but. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I knew this guy through my father named Dave Pell, who I think he taught at um, Dick Grove School of Music right. as well. But yeah. he he was a friend of mine. And you know, he helped a great deal, right? He did. I mean, uh, I, I remember being at his office and he was saying, if you're going to do publishing, you need to know this. And when, when something gets put on hold, you want to make a note of this. This is what you have to keep track of. And so based on that, and he was extremely helpful, um, I sort of devised a system for mm. you, which turned out to be very helpful, especially later on, not that long ago. When well, i got to jump in here. You know, I've been with Diane for 40 years, over 40 years, and we've just been able to renegotiate our, all our copyrights from our career into a very favorable place. And I'm, I just recently read a book um, by um, Chris Difford uh, with Squeeze, and I was amazed that all through his career, all those years, at the end of it, even now, at the end of his career, um, they don't uh, own much of their own copyrights at all. And Diane was able to uh, take all our songs, and my songs in particular through these 40 years, label them, get control of them, and um, we just really rene renegotiated a, a fantastic uh, situation for me at the end of my career, which is a songwriter's a dream, really. Yeah. You want to get your songs your back. Your copyrights are yeah, really important. But anyway, I, I, it was very important to me to keep track of everything, so I had a system for it. Because there was this clause in your contract with Zomba, which was very specific, that if, if they hadn't cut a song from the time you submitted it, so I had to keep that date. That's my first publisher, anyway. Yes, yeah. in England. Um, if within two years after submitting the song, they hadn't got a cut with a major, um, then you had 28 days to notify them that you wanted your song back. <laughs> 28. So I kept track of those 28 days. First of all, the date that we submitted the song. Wow. And, and, yeah. and then I'd put it, uh, calendar it for two years later if we yeah. hadn't gotten yeah. a cut. Yeah. I would send them a notice, which the lawyers helped me um, create and i just use the same template for each different song and still today at diane's uh house and and uh, her office there it's just tons and tons and tons of folders with uh, my songs written on them so how grateful can you be i am very grateful diane now it worked out well because one by one by one we got a ton of uh, songs back reverted yeah. back to you yeah. before we even got to this getting our copyrights back time yeah 
you know, it 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 it, it brings up a really uh, a memory that, that I have from those early years that we worked together. I, on the last show, we mentioned um, that I worked with Ray Parker. The first thing that I did was Ghostbusters, and it was such a success, and I got on so well with Ray that uh, we got a call. Um, well, actually, I submitted another song to to Ray for his band Ray uh, Radio, and it was a song called "Love Is a Drug," and it was just a really great, great, great track. I think I've played it on a uh, previous show, um, and um, Ray loved the song, and then his management got involved, and I thought, well, you know, um, uh, I'm glad he loves the song, but then his manager, after the success of Ghostbusters, he called you, didn't he, Diane? He did. His name was Joe Ruffalo. <coughs> of Cavallo, Ruffalo, and Farnoli. And uh, he he wanted uh, Ray's name on there. I don't think he spoke to Ray about this. Yeah, I, I don't think, think Ray knew about this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he wanted he wanted Ray to be the writer, or as a writer, and to get part of the song. And I said, no. And this is a song you wrote on your own. Yes. I don't even yes. think you wrote it with Brian. Yes, so, I said, right. It's, it's a song I totally wrote on my own. So, you know, that, that was really important to us because it was early on when you didn't have that many on your own. And this yet. was going to be for another film. And I think they said that Ray hasn't got time to write the song. Yes. So, um, but he wanted, he wanted Ray to cut the song or Ray wanted to cut it. Uh, anyway, I had to argue with, with yeah. Joe over yeah. this and I wasn't going to budge on that. Although I did, after talking to you... Um, say you know if if you want a piece of the publishing or if you want yeah. a cut but we don't want to put ray's name on it because everybody th will think because ray had the fame yeah. that ray wrote it and you were just the writer who you know yeah yeah got your name on it and he w he didn't want that he wanted ray to be the writer and as you said, I don't think Ray was at all aware of this situation. I don't right? think so either. I really can't imagine. But, but it, back in those days, you know, even I was thinking, oh, God, you know, I've just got Earth, Wind of Fire, etc. Wouldn't it be great to be with Ray Parker? It was all about credits for writers. It's all about credits. And I was very tempted for a while because it would be written by Ray Parker and Martin Page. And then I thought to myself, it's just not bloody fair. It wasn't fair. And that was our big thing yeah. all along is yeah. we wanted what was fair. We wanted Always. what we deserved never more yeah you know if it was fair and yes. if it was unfair to us we were going to stand our ground and i thought about that for other songwriters i thought if i you know so i was beginning to speak to other writers and go to ascap and get asked to speak to them i thought you've got to fight for these rights because it's integrity of what you do and if you get crushed the first time you could easily be crushed the second third and fourth time and i mean there are more ways of looking at it than what's presented to you like like offering him you know something that would that Ray would be able to earn money from, and, yeah. and therefore Joe would earn money off of Ray from it. Yeah. Uh, but that wasn't the thing he wanted Ray's name on it, so there was really no negotiation. You know, I, I, I do think that in LA, you know, pretty early on, we Diane made me aware of it can be this way. You know, with Earth, Wind, and Fire, I, I might have had to have uh, sacrificed something with publishing with Maurice. It didn't happen. He was very honourable, yeah. uh, but instantly with Ray Parker, that started to occur, and we started to hear hear this happening more. And in fact, we'll probably talk about a bit more of that in the later on because it happened but um i think it's a great time to play the demo 
of uh, yeah. Love is a Drug. In fact, I went across to uh, see Ray Parker not too recently. Uh, he still got it. <laughs> yeah, and the first thing he said to me, because I wanted him to play on my new record, he said, hey, Love is a Drug. And he pulled it out, a cassette. He said, I still love that song, you know. And I thought, wow, he never, he still got the cassette, yeah. you know. Um, but anyway, I think it's a perfect time to play the act, a actual eight-track demo of Love is the Drug.
fun to listen to, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Good demo. I was singing it very different in those days. Uh, very tight trousers. And, uh, of course, um, we, I thought it was going to be on a, a, a radio record because Ray was going to put together radio again. It didn't happen, but uh, it was nice to hear that demo. It's amazing. when you. I think that's another thing for songwriters. You lose songs over a period of time. Yeah. Diane obviously used to keep all records of my songs when I wrote them. I had to give her a lyric sheet. Yeah. I had to give her the chords. Uh, she had to have every details of it. Thank God she did that. Yeah. I mean, it was all, all about. Yeah, it's all about keeping records. Even now, if I call Diane and say, "Hey, you know, I'm playing an old song I wrote with Bernie Taupin, Slumber City or something," I say, "Have you got the chords?" And she says, "Of course, I've got the chords." <laughs> yes, and uh, and Diane faxes the chords. A few things slipped through the cracks that yeah. I didn't, but most well, of them I did. We were pretty prolific through that period. Um, Around this time as well, um, I want to get Diane's feedback on this. I had a major, major collaboration come in front of me. Um, I'd had the, I'd had the hits. I was working with Bernie, working with Earth, Wind and Fire, and Gary Gersh at Geffen Records said, "I'd like you to write with Robbie Robertson." Um, and um, I remember saying, like I did in those days, like, "Yes, of course." And uh, I didn't really know too much about Robbie Robertson. I um, and I had to call Diane and say. Who is Robbie Robertson and what does it mean? Is it worth it? Yeah, you said to me, should I be wearing cowboy boots? <laughs> I thought it was, well, you know, I, me- I remember the band in England. They had a hit called Rag Mumba Rag. And I remember in uh, when I was living in the South with my dad uh, at the air bases, I heard the night they drove old Dixie down by yeah. Joan Baez. And oh. I... Yeah, and I remember buying the record and going, Robbie Robertson wrote that. Um, but I didn't really, I wasn't really a fan of the band. Yeah. Because I thought they were, you know, I was a pop boy, and I just thought they were a little bit um, like Rag Mama Rag, a little, yeah. bit, a little bit ragged. Yeah, no, I told you, um, I think you already knew they were Bob Dylan's band, but, but mm-hmm. um, I told you about Big Pink. That was like the big thing when I, you yeah, know, yeah, that yeah. was my era, and... Um, that was just a huge album. Everybody had to have that album. So, you know, that Diane, was Diane took me down to Tower Records and <laughs> said, "You need to buy Big Pink, this, that, yeah. that, and that." And I did a quick course. I usually knew everything, everything about everybody I worked with, but I didn't really know too much about Robbie. I did a quick uh, homework, and Diane put me straight with it, and I got another a, a deeper appreciation. And in that period, I wrote "Fallen Angel" and "Hell's Half Acre" on his. Um, first solo record gary gersh had wanted me to uh, to modernize <laughs> robbie somewhat but actually robbie was very uh, his own man and in a lot of ways i bent to his rules and fawn angel i think uh, was one of the most uh, emotional things i've written uh, i think you when i played the demo to you of fawn yeah. angel it, it was wasn't called fawn angel it was called war of angels but i remember diane saying this is pretty special yeah can you remember anything about the uh era that i was working with robbie robertson i know i was knackered coming home from the village remember well it, it went on and on and on That's i right. do remember that and um you'd bring robbie ideas and he was a real thinker yeah he not not so much talking he thought a lot yeah uh, i didn't really that's right i never saw him very much i think i saw him once or twice when you were working with him that's right that's um, right he was he, at the st- he seemed to be always in that room he was always yes like, he had a special room at the top yeah. of the village and we were down below one day working with uh paul young and uh i said well robbie's probably upstairs and robbie came down and took a photograph with us all. and i think that's when you first that's, met him that's right yes i remember that he yeah. was a, he was a real heartthrob you know um but I, I do remember that, and I do remember they oh, were, we were long working. days, yeah. and every time 
you came back with ideas. There was more to do. You know. <laughs> Fallen Angel took over a year. Yeah. Ah, uh, there's the phone, and uh, <laughs> it says on the phone, spam risk. And spam, I, I, spam, 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 spam. <laughs> Monty Python. But it makes me think like, oh, spam risk. That means you may eat some spam. It's a risk that you may go down to the shop and say, I need spam. It's a spam risk. Anyway, I don't know why I went there. <laughs> spam, 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 spam. Back to, uh, back to the Robbie Robertson uh, solo album. And uh, yes, I remember driving back to Diane's house and saying, oh, this goes on for bloody ever. Because Robbie has, as as Diane said, I would play him ideas and he'd go, yes, mm. <laughs> Man yeah. of few words. Yeah, he went, mm. yeah I, think, I think you're on to something there. But, you know, I think you were, you, I think deep down you knew you were learning something oh, from all oh, of that. Yeah, and yeah. really. Well, I've said it before, Diane, and I said, I mean, and actually I think you made me very aware that this was a very uh, important collaboration. And I had Bernie, Maurice White and Robbie Robertson. And for all different reasons, I saw them as the pyramid of a great education. Yeah. I learned a lot with Robbie because he would take a lot, as we said, a lot of time on really trying to eke out emotions. Yeah, and I think I, I used to I always bring back roughs. That was my thing. I I'd say, can you? After we worked on a on a song, I would say, can I take a rough away, please, Robbie? And then I'd go back to Diane and play it to her yeah. and to see how she felt about it. But that was a great period with Robbie, wasn't that it? That was a great period. Very. Uh, a very distinctive period, really. It was almost exclusively Robbie during that. Yeah, you know, I, I, you've brought back another memory. I remember that I was working with so many people, though, yeah. that uh, once I turned up to Robbie and he said, uh, "Can you, can you come, can you come tomorrow?" And I said, "No, I'm working with uh, Maurice White." And he go, "Why is Earth, Wind, and Fire more important than me?" And I go, "Well, <laughs> well, you, well, I suppose it is, uh, you know." And so there was a lot going on, but Robbie was, uh, as you can, as you've always, you can see when he. Uh, uh, talks and does documentaries you get a sense there's a real earth um, caring and deepness about his music yeah. which I think helped me a great deal because I'd come through the pop world and suddenly I was with Peter Gabriel and Daniel Lamois and musicians from New Orleans and it meant something to me because I don't, didn't want to just be, and I don't mean this derogatory, but I didn't want to be thought of as a as a, a, a corporate songwriter that was um, just doing pop songs all the time. I wanted to learn more, and I think that you couldn't learn better than being on an album that took, you know, three hours, three hours, three years yeah. of real intense work. Yeah, you really had to dig deep. Uh, digging deep uh, also digging deep writing songs for movies at that time I do know that uh, that became quite important didn't it it was like a part of that era in the uh, late 80s and 90s you're right yeah it became a big thing and all the movies seemed to always yeah make room for popular songs to be in it I mean Dancing in Heaven we got into uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun yeah and of course Brian and myself and Qfield, we thought, well, that's amazing. You know, you, you, your songs can be in movies. But then after the success we were we were getting, I remember that you were calling me a lot and saying, um, they're going to pay you to write uh, a, a song, right, for a film? Right, they pay you just just to write the song for the film. Can you imagine? <laughs> if you if they took it, then then uh, there was a fee. Yeah. W- of which the initial amount was a part of. 
But if you if they didn't take it, you got this like consolation fee for yes, having it's, done to, it. To me, it was like you can't lose. You know, yeah. it's like uh, if we write a lot of crap, they're still going to pay us. But of course, I took these uh, film songs really serious, and I would say to Diane because they'd have deadlines. I'd say you've got to give me three weeks to write this, and Diane would you know make all these excuses up. That's what's great about having a, a, a manager. I've got to say <laughs> now is because you don't really want to argue with anybody. You don't want to argue with the songwriters. You don't want to talk about manager um, can be the bitch that absolutely so uh, diane would say you know you've got a call to write for this film and i'd say great and uh, but give me three weeks um and actually what comes to mind here is a film uh, it sticks in my mind that we wrote a song for a movie called say anything remember that yeah and it was a, a quite a successful film it was the one where you had uh, the uh, the boombox being held up to the window and uh, peter gabriel's uh, in your eyes was being played well i wrote a song for that with john bettis and I don't know how I got with John Bettis. Can you remember? John Bettis was the, was the uh, lyricist who worked with the Carpenters. Yeah, I actually don't remember how that happened, but I think it was through the publisher. Yeah, and so um, he had a, a, a good reputation, and so he came across to my house, and I uh, wrote a song called All for Love. Now, I, uh, I'd actually sang All for Love in the demo, and I think John Bettis was like, yeah, that's, that's normal. But we couldn't find out anything else to write. So he kept the title, and then he wrote some really gorgeous words with it. Tommy Funderburg, remember him? Yeah. Great session singer. He came across to my house, and we did a demo for it and uh actually it brings back memories diane just just speak a little bit about what it was like when you um were dealing with movie companies well i remember with 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 this particular one um nancy wilson i think it was that's right the, from the, the, heart. the singer from heart you sang these dreams yeah yeah was was going to do the song and uh apparently well, I got a call from Trudy Green, her manager, saying that she added some words or changed some words around right, uh, while right. she was working up the song. That's right. Yeah. And uh, and Trudy thought that she should be added as a writer. Uh, yeah. And so, of course, I I checked with you. I mean, it was ridiculous, but I checked with you. And do you remember? <laughs> I do. I remember going like, no, bloody way. I mean, they were in the studio cutting it. Yeah. And then, um, you know... Uh, and Diane told me that and I mean I know what Diane felt but I said no you can't do that the song's already finished I, we've already done demos of it they're in the I mean studio. we're back to this thing about yeah. fair it's just not fair and again this begins to appear more and more that you know at the last minute they're going to try and get something on the writers and get and hopefully they'll think that you're weak enough to want the cut like we may not cut this song unless you right. agree now I knew they were in the studio and I uh, and actually Diane so Diane spoke back to Trudy and said no and I think she left a message on her phone and Trudy Green called me and I remember getting a message and standing and that's really not yeah not cool and I remember hearing her voice on the answer phone and saying I'm not going to answer this because I know Diane's already answered and then um, I think it was confirmed to Diane that they 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 agreed and actually when I heard the record there was no change on the record there was no other lyrics there yeah. but they do threaten you they say you know you may they would not hold things like that over your head yeah. you know you may um, not get the cut if this goes um yeah. i think this again it's a we've got the demo here that we did uh, that i wrote with john bettis should we play it diane yeah let's do that <laughs> that sounded quite professional didn't it shall <laughs> we do it oh, of course we will uh this was done in um on an eight 
on a 16 track and it was done in this house but i just bought the house so my my board and my tape machine were in the living room it was one of the first things i ever did in this house tommy funderberg sings on the demo um he sang it and then he wasn't happy with it and so he said i want to sing it again john bettis came to the house and heard the song while tommy was doing the second uh vocal on it and uh i remember taking this into the record company uh, and playing it to them. And I remember the feeling when they heard it was like, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. And of course, I think I did a song and dance and jumped up and down and pointed at how great it was. And eventually at the end of the meeting, they thought, well, it's John Bettis. He's the lyricist for the Carpenters and Martin Page is quite well known. And somehow we walked it through and it actually, didn't it die and it became a single? It did, yeah. And I think there's a video of it on YouTube. And I think Nancy Wilson sang it well. I'm trying to remember all this. Richie Zito. That's right. Richie. Richie, who uh, we'd met many years. He started to seem to be producing a lot of my songs. Anyway, I'm rambling. Um, Diane, I want you to introduce this song, please. All for Love, the demo. <laughs>
yeah, that again, again brought back memories, and uh, it's you know hearing these old demos again. You you suddenly sometimes you think I could have done better, and then other times you go like that sounds really really bloody good. They they should have jumped up and down about it, but um, that was in the film. Say anything. Uh, it reminds me, Diane, that we did have a lot of trauma sometimes with getting cuts. It's not that easy. It just doesn't fall into your into into your lap, does it? Sometimes. No, not sometimes. And when when it does, there's often <clears throat> arguments and and uh, an uphill battle about about the deal. Again, it's good to have a manager uh, because you can just say, "I'm not going to cause the problems." It's your no, job. No, <laughs> you, you want the artist or the writer to, to be the good guy all the time. You don't want him to have any any kind of nasty... I, I, I did put you under a lot of pressure, though, um, I believe. Uh, right back... I'm going to drop right back to when I first came to L.A. Uh, <laughs> people wanted us to produce because Brian and myself had done... Uh, Dancing in Heaven and Q-Phil and there was a band called Bone Symphony yeah. uh, which were about to break and Capital said you know we want you to do an EP with them which is right but it's a mini album and um, they were quite a good band weren't they Di? <coughs> oh they were an excellent band I three really piece, liked a them three piece a three piece yeah and uh, we did so we, we said yes this will be good for us to produce we went in the studio uh, we produced them on about four or five tracks it's on youtube i'm, I'm proud of it and in england they gave it like uh, this they reviewed it as saying this is the best band com- to come from america and quite a time did but they couldn't break it here in america but when we finished this wonderful ep um diane was speaking to capital records i think it was tom trumbo of my memory's good he was an a&r man yeah. and they were trying to change the deal on us yeah all of a sudden out of the blue so <laughs> martin was of course infuriated and um just sort of at the end of the session one day took the tapes under his arm the masters and walked out of the studio with the tapes and Took them home. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I did that. I mem- I mem- Nobody does that. Nobody does. And I remember I was so infuriated that we weren't being treated fairly. And um, I remember talking to the second engineer and saying, look, I don't want to get anybody into trouble. It was always good to make friends with the second engineer. And I said, but you can leave the door open uh, where you put the tapes and I'm going to take them. And he was like, well, I didn't hear that, but the door will lay- stay open. And I took the tapes back to my house. I remember Brian going, are you sure you want to do this, Pagey? <laughs> it was war. Those tapes were not going to be revealed or show, you know, found until we got our deal, which yeah. we had already agreed on the deal, and they were just trying to renege. So basically, I stole the tapes and said, you can't have them until the deal is what you, we agreed to do, and it's fair. And I think even Diana had to speak to lawyers and even Bob Cavallo. Uh, Bob was, was even, like, <laughs> amazed. He said, oh, my God, that's balls. But but he did say it. I think he was quite into it in a way, wasn't he? I think secretly he well, was yeah, quite what, w- quite amused and happy that that uh, Martin, the artist, you know, had had the balls to do that. He didn't have to order it or say anything no but i remember you spoke to um our, it was the, our, our lawyer and our lawyer was like um dangerous but it's okay we'll work it out yeah kind of thing yeah i mean we, we got told uh by capital records like uh, we don't you know that the police would come around and then I. oh you know there's always accompanied yeah. uh, these things are always accompanied with threats of various yeah you know imagination and i just said no it wasn't me it was brian the scotsman and he lives here <laughs> i just pointed at everybody else but it got to that point where they were saying if you do not give us the tapes back you've got to face this and they, then when they realized that we wouldn't give the tapes back and that yeah. we could make a point of it they um they agreed um even though i was um being a thief they agreed that it was a fair thing to do right 
they came to their senses and and they eventually honored the deal and the tapes were returned and all, all went well. I, re- I remember that a, a man coming to the door and me opening the door and saying here are the 24 track tapes and he just got in a taxi and drove away and I thought <laughs> I'm not going to prison I'm not going to prison uh, but that's what you had to face with but also if I was on my own and I didn't have Diane and her link to Bob Cavallo and her link to a good attorney you yeah. know we would have been crushed yes Absolutely. That can yeah. happen. Yeah. So Bone Symphony was a bit of a battle to get that record out, but um, that brought back memories. Uh, but those days were great because um, our stock was going up and I seemed to be working absolutely non-stop. non-stop. Yeah. And, it, and uh, of course, you're also faced with going back to your old country unless because I wanted to stay in L.A. and I just wanted to keep on working. And so I asked Diane, what should I do? Because I think I was on a, um, a worker's permit, wasn't H1. I? H1. H1. Yeah. And so Lisa. I, I had to get a green card. You had to get a green card. Well, that that was a whole process starting with the H-1 because I remember when you first came here, you came as a regular visitor, visa-wise, and the first thing that happened through the Cavallo Ruffalo and Farnoli office was Valerie Carter, who Bob managed, was good, wanted to do some demos. And, and she was a great singer that sang with singer. James Taylor yeah. and uh, numerous great, great West yeah. Coast artists. Yeah. And she had an album from before that, too, yeah. that was out with a, a small group. Uh, and and um, Bob thought it would be a good idea for her to record some of your demos right. for her demos that would, you know, that would be used to get her a record deal. Yeah. And... Um, that we thought was great for you, too, because you'd have Valerie singing these demos for you that you could use to get cuts on the songs. Yeah. So uh, the problem we had was that you didn't have a work visa, so it would have been illegal for you to do work and to get paid for it. Yeah. And you needed to get paid, uh, and we really wanted to do it. So uh, eventually I came up with this idea and said to Bob, you know, if you pay for Martin's legal fees for the immigration attorney to get the H-1 work visa. Mm, mm -hmm. We can use you as the sponsor to get that, you know, through. You can pay him as a legal expense. That way you can write it off as a legal expense. Martin would have had to use that money for that purpose anyway. So it's like paying him without it being illegal. Great plan. And everybody was happy. And didn't um, didn't we have to uh, didn't Bernie Taupin get involved in helping us? Yes, with the uh, green eventually. Card? So that we had three H one visas. I think that three was the maximum over the years. Oh, that's H1 right. was about that's a right. year too long. You had to be so aware of that if you're running out yes. of time. Yes, yeah, yeah. and we used the same guy, Ralph Aaron Price, to get your you know the immigration attorney. So he knew he knew us. Anyway, uh, by the time it was time to get your green card, we, uh, you were working, this is when you were heavily working with Bernie. Yeah. And Bernie had a company called Rouge Booze and um, well, these, yeah, the people, his accounting yeah. people yeah. that were running all the business, all the, all the money part. And uh, so we worked with them. I had to, to work for him, right? Is that right? Yeah, you didn't really actually work for him, but right. we set it up so that uh, they were sort of a pseudo-employer of yours, but the contracts looked like they employed your services. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the the money went to them, and it was great that Bernie was so trusting. Yes, thank you, Bernie. Because thank we you. had to really yeah. you know, do things where yeah. they, they really 
you know, had to trust you, you yeah. know, in a lot of ways. Not that they weren't protected, but still, it was a leap of faith. Yeah. Uh, and so they, they would get paid, and so did we, because anything you got paid for would have to be paid to Rouge Booze. I'm already baffled, already. On behalf yeah. of you, right? <laughs> and then Rouge Booze would pay it to you. So that you still got it, but it was a roundabout way. So that, uh, and that helped you get your green card because they endorsed you. Can you, you draw as well, a cake again and <laughs> separate a that cake? That was a little more complicated. And I'll get hungry again. I, I remember that. And also, uh, I, I remember that you ha- getting a green card, you have to get a lot of people to validate you and sign and uh, for you and say that you're not going to take anybody's job away. And I remember Grace Slick from um, Starship, she wrote a lovely letter for me. Yeah. yeah. Even though she doesn't like We Built the City now, she did then, and she wrote a beautiful letter. Yeah. Um, we had to take your picture with a lot of people. Like, <laughs> I think we were at a thing, an ASCAP thing, and Al Gore spoke there, so we got your picture with Al Gore. And the mayor of Los and Angeles. And the mayor. <laughs> and Robbie Robertson. Uh, as, well, Absolutely. That, that time we got him in the village, we said we need a, we need a picture together. Yes, as you had to get lots of photographs um, to prove that you were um, a valid uh, green card kind of person, right? Right, that you were somebody who was valuable in the u.s and you weren't taking anything away from somebody again it it was diane's great help she helped my father as well with that but i gotta tell a quick story here that people might find quite humorous is that you get nervous when you're going to go to have your interview for your green card (laughs) and diane said you know you go take your earring out you know wear a tie uh, wear a look a decent man comb your hair and uh you go i went into this big building and you wait for your turn, and I had a huge folder of all people's um, validations for me and letters and photographs. Do you remember that, Diane? Yeah. Uh, that building was quite scary to me. And uh, they sent me downstairs. You wait there for about an hour, and then I came in front of a lovely lady. Um, a black lady sat there, and she looked at my files, you know, and I was being a really good schoolboy, and she said, there's a lot in those files. I'm suspicious. <laughs> I was like, I said, well, no, it's, it's all real. But she said, anybody with that amount of information, I'm suspicious. And anyway, she was starting to go through my files, and then she went, oh, you worked on Ghostbusters. Remember? <laughs> yes. She started to sing it to me, and I went like, yes, yes, I did. She said, oh, that's great. And she just stamped it, stamped it straight away. Bang, you're through. <laughs> so it was like she didn't even want to read all the stuff, but at the moment she saw Ghostbusters, who are you going to call? She said, you're in. Yeah. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, are, Ray. You're now a citizen. It's okay. Um, so you're very lucky if uh, they know some of the songs that you do, but they're getting the green card and Diane's help. I, I couldn't have stayed here that long to do all that work. So That was a great day when you got the green card. Oh, wasn't it uh and i put my earring back in and uh, <laughs> became a scruff again became a scruff that leads me on to uh again just thinking about um i don't know why but it was like the the film songs you know when we're just talking about say anything uh, i think around that time or the year after that um john wake called me he had heard a demo and it was uh, he'd been in the babies and he'd heard a song i'd written called with bernie called deal for life for the movie um Days of Thunder, right? That's right, yeah. And I, this is all, all these film songs were Tom coming. Cruise. That's right. All these songs were being uh, coming up for movies. And uh, also at that time, um, Diane was putting me forward to produce more acts. And That's I, right. And, and uh, it, those acts were coming for mostly men. I mean, I was associate producer with Maurice and with on his solo record. And um, yeah, the Bone Symphony thing. Which Bone Symphony already happened again. Men. And then I always thought thought about this. Um, uh, went on with um, Paul Young, yes, and um, associate producer with Robbie Robertson, 
That's right. And then Kim Carnes asked me to try something on a track called No Man's Land. I thought my first female production, but that didn't go through. Um, she said she couldn't sing it like these dreams too high. Uh, <laughs> and I think um, when John Waite asked me to do it, I yeah. remember re refusing in a way. I, th I said, no, I'm, I'm really a songwriter because no, no, I really want to do this. You've done a great demo of it. And so we went in to do uh, Deal for Life um a record with john with john Waite, with me producing it and we did a great demo of it and it was mark lennon a lead singer that i asked diane to f i asked diane to find me um certain singers to sing on my demos didn't we yeah i think you found tommy i think you found through a publisher mark marky lennon from venice beautiful great singer and he sounded amazing on the demo yes i thought uh, why don't we play the demo for deal for life let's do that here we go Deal for life.
I love that demo. I think it turned out great, don't you, Don? Me too. I uh, love it. Uh, the, the vocal, um, beautiful. But I think that's what it attracted um, John Waite to, to do the track. So uh, I went into the studio um, to record the track with John Waite, worked out all the keys, got all the musicians. And they said, didn't they, Diane, that you can't have John Waite there with you singing uh, consistently? He, he was on tour at the time. That's and right. so we had to we had to find uh, dates or times when they could get him into the studio. Yeah, he was ba- bad English. Bad English he was with. Yeah. 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 So uh, uh, I think the time when you got his vocals was... Um, he was in was San Diego. And it was like close to midnight. We had to <laughs> wait for him to finish That's right. the concert. And then and then they drove him in, I guess, to From LA. San Diego. Yeah, and I've got to tell you, I mean, you all know this, but if you've, uh, you're waiting there all into the early hours. Now... John John has been singing with bad English, screaming his head off, and yeah. he's being driven to you from San Diego into LA in the middle of the night, middle of the night to sing vocals. You know, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't agree with that from the beginning, but I thought okay, and I spoke to John about it. He said, "No, I'll be fine. I'll be fine." But the poor man was exhausted when he came to sing. Yeah, some of a little vocals. burnt out. Yeah, and uh, he, you know, really, we couldn't get the best we wanted to get out of John because. I think, Diane, you did talk... It was, again, we're talking about Trudy Green. It was the same manager we yeah. had to deal with. And I think you said this isn't going to work very well, right? I, I did tell her that, that, you know, this just isn't the most opportune thing. Isn't there a better... Can't we get more time with them on, a, like, a day off or something? She said no. It just was too tight. Yep, and she said, no, he can do it. And anyway, I, I had to get, you know put John through the ringer and then I had to comp his vocal to get the best I could and it was pretty good but I knew that John wasn't absolutely happy because he was exhausted and I told him I said you know we really should wait till you uh, had a rest and do it all again but he had a deadline so the song was finished and it was sent on to the uh, record company and um, then we got a call didn't we that we got a call. I got a call from Michael Lippman uh, Bernie's manager Bernie wrote the song with me yeah, yeah. And um, he wanted. He also managed um, Ron Nevison. Ron Nevison, who was a very, very successful, well-known producer at the time, and um, he, they were going to put Ron Nevison on to add to the production. And, um, and this, this is a great story, I think. Yeah. And yeah. Mike was saying. So it's going to be produced by Ron Nevison and Martin. And I said, well, uh, okay, under two conditions. Martin's name is first because he really produced it. Ron it was just adding, I think he ended up adding a guitar solo. <laughs> and, uh, and two, that it doesn't affect Martin's uh, points. And that, 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 that's royalties as a producer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that this, you know, turned into a, a, an argument, uh, so to speak, where there was a back and forth and back and forth. And I'm saying to Michael, you mean that Ron Neverson, famous mm. producer, yeah. you want him to take credit for the production that Martin, songwriter, sometimes produces, did? And he said, yeah. <laughs> no shame. Yeah. And I said, well, no. Mm. Um, you know, Martin's still coming up, and, and he needs credit, credit where where he deserves it. So we'll agree to it if Martin's name is first. No, 
No, he wouldn't have that. You can't have Martin's name before Ron Nevison's. So mm. then, uh, apparently, Ron Nevison got involved. Yeah, it's uh, you know, uh, Diane was sort of keeping the the wolves at bay, but then. Um it was supposed to be a big movie. You know, it was going to be Tom Cruise, and it, everybody thought that Days of Thunder was going to explode. And even Bernie called me and said, you know, we don't don't, uh, don't stop this track being done, Martin, because it's going to be huge. And I went like, well, it's just not fair. It's just not fair what's going on. John couldn't sing it the way we all want it to be because he was tired. And uh, it was put forward to me that John Waite said, hey, Ron Neverson should get involved and finish this, you know. Um, so I felt a little bit under... I don't know if that's true, though. Uh, that yeah, just said that, that. that came up, and I thought I felt a little bit under pressure then because I thought the singer wants to try something else. Yeah, I'd comped his vocal down as best as it could be. Anyway, I got a call from Ron Neverson. Now, we have to just say here, Ron Neverson, he did The Who, Quadrophenia. He'd had... He did The Heart. Many, many big, big records. And, uh, of, course, of course, These Dreams had gone number one, and Ron Neverson had done that record. And... Uh, I remember picking up the phone and he said, um, <laughs> I think my memory's gone on this. He goes, hi. And I went, hi. He goes, I'm Ron Neverson. And I went, yeah. And he goes, do you know who I am? And I said, <laughs> yes, yes, I do. You've done some brilliant work with Quadra, you know, The Who. And I, I, I love all this. And I wrote, the, yeah, I know you wrote these dreams, um, but I am Ron Neverson. And uh, I, I'm not happy with John Waite's vocal on this. And I said, well, nor am I. You know, I mean, I think it's pretty good. But, uh, you know, he was tired. Well, uh, again, I think he said, well, John wants me to get involved. And I was like, okay, fine. You know, um, you know who I am? Yes, yes, I do. I've got quadrophenia. He was a little bit brutal. And I just said, well, you know, I don't think you're going to get a better vocal. Uh, you want to keep save that vocal if you can. He and wanted you to send him the all the vocals yes vocals. that's right he wanted me to send all the vocals so he could look at them again and i i'd already comped them down from you know like six vocals or maybe seven or eight down into one and i said we never had enough tracks to just keep that stuff and this is the best stuff believe me you know um and it was quite funny really because you know i think he said for the third time but you do know who i am yes <laughs> yes i'm gonna play quadrophenia tonight <laughs> <laughs> i love pete townsend uh anyway it was a bit comical and uh, I just left it like that. And I was a bit sort of saying, I've done all this work. I've done all the drums and everything. You know, if it really changes around and you really add to it, okay, I understand if John wants it that way. Um, but Diane, eventually, after I told her that conversation uh, with the man who said, do you know who I am? Uh, <laughs> uh, Diane had to call Michael Lippman uh, and I think um, we weren't going to agree to everything they said. We yeah. weren't agreeing to giving... To giving uh, credit to to ron nevison first but we did agree to to if ron wanted to add and i think production. he wanted extra points as well didn't he yeah he was the, the whole thing so mm. we said no i'm no to that because that's not fair and that's what i said to michael lipman i said look mike it's just not fair yeah, yeah. and i'm not asking no for, we were just trying to be fair. we're not insisting yeah. on anything that that is beyond what is right uh, and and not only that, we were gracious enough to say, yeah, go ahead. If he wants to take it and do more vocals and yeah. record Ron, uh, and record John uh, further, I didn't steal the tapes this time. The, didn't steal oh, the I, tapes. I passed so. them over. I passed them over. The thing is that now we were getting very close to the time when uh, the That's movie right. people That's had right. to do the label copy and put everything in print and everything, yes. and so they were waiting for us to tell them that it's okay to give this credit yeah and uh we wouldn't we yeah. wouldn't say okay and that's why bernie called martin to say you know don't hold it up martin and and then uh mike lipman was saying to me 
You know, and by the way, it, I believe it was us, probably Martin, who got this cut in the first place, who yeah, got this yeah. connection to the film in the yeah. first place, right? Yeah. So then mm. Michael Lippman had the nerve, which is, I guess, being a good manager, to say to me, well, you know, if you don't do this, you're going you're to uh, uh, get in the way of, uh, we may lose the cut. You have a major, said, well, major cut. Well, yeah. you know. That's the way it is. We got the cut in the first place, so yeah, it's yeah. like... Not, I'm not taking anything away from you. The trauma of uh, going through records. And then he started there. to say things like, oh, I'm, if you don't do this, uh, you'll never work in this town again. And, of course, that was quite <laughs> comical to me that it's like a movie. You'll you know? never work in Who this town again. Who says that? I know. It was like a cowboy <laughs> and movie. And, of course, I had just, I had not that long ago been working for what was called the pasta triplets, referred to as the pasta triplets, where a lot of people sort of under, Cavallo, under their breath. Cavallo, Ruffalo, Farnoli. Under yes. their breath, they thought they might be connected to the mafia. Mm. So, of course, oh, I think I said something to him like, ha, 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 you know, you yeah. forget. I just, I, I used to work for the pasta triplets. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Shaking in my boots. Yeah, it, it was, it was we, we laugh about it now. We've got a great relationship with Michael Lippmann. We did. He yeah, offered me he, a job after this. Yes, after this fight, he said, I need you working on my side. That's right, right? Yeah. And we had, yeah, I mean, he really did. And we met him a couple of times. We were Bernie. on good terms. This yeah. was just, you know, it was all a business thing. Yeah. Um, we were just out trying to outmaneuver each other. Well, it was again. End. I think it comes down to fairness. Yes. And even and then when I heard the record finished, the vocal was exactly the same. What I'd comped, obviously, uh, Ron Levison didn't get another vocal uh, from John. There were yeah. some strings on it, which were, were great, uh, and a different guitar part. But basically, nothing was touched. I think he was in there for a day. And of course, he was saying, I think John can sing this better instantly. I said, yes, I think he can. If he's, but, but, but what we heard on the record, it was no different. But these were the, the politics and the trauma of actually sometimes seeing a record through. And of course, you remember the little battles because some of them are quite humorous. And you have to hold your ground. But I think what resonates from that is to one person saying, do you know who I am? And the other person saying, <laughs> you'll never work in this town again. <laughs> and we never did. <laughs> That's why we're doing this podcast. It's the, all we can the do. The thing is, is when mm. you're the little guy, yeah, they yeah. people will try and take advantage of that and, yeah. and you know, walk all over you or, yeah. or take advantage. In of fact, it. after we... We, we, we'd held up for a few of these things uh, when when the album's out and the record's out and you're mixing with everybody including yeah. Ron Levison and all the all the artists it's all forgotten very it's very totally quickly forgotten. and I think they've got everybody's got a, a lot of respect then yeah for that you held out for what you want to do yes yeah. I think a lot of the strength in in holding our ground yeah. most of the times we had battles like this was because we felt that we were it's fair fair yeah, yeah. all we wanted was a fair deal and we weren't and even to then I was happy for Ron Neverson <coughs> to get involved I could have been yeah. I could have said no that wasn't the deal we had but I sure. thought if that's what the artists want and everybody's moving that way and in fact um when I saw Ron Ron Neverson at um, at an ASCAP meeting after that um I shouted out do you know who I am and he said no <laughs> <laughs> So I didn't, I didn't leave much of a reputation there, did I? Are you sure you don't know that? No, I have no idea. <laughs> anyway, on to good music. I, I think you could see that me and Diane laugh a lot. All the time. <laughs> I think that's what's kept us together. You know, I play her songs and she just laugh. Um, but 
still happens. Uh, I thought we're nearly at the end. Of, I can't believe it. It's nearly an hour again. I mean, unbelievable. And we got, this is what we're like all the time. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, it's true. Actually, when my mother was alive, and I'd be talking to Diane about music or in the car outside the house, we'd be there for like five hours. And I she, mean, Martin does most of the talking, and I just pipe in. Once no, she just drops off to sleep and goes. He's <laughs> off again. Uh, but I think it's time. We got you know we're nearly the end of this show, and we have to do another one. I think because there's some things I still haven't asked you, but I want to play a demo I just found a rare demo a song called always that i wrote with bernie uh, sorry sorry with brian fairweather when i first came yeah. into la and and uh, philip bailey philip bailey of earth wind and fire fame uh, i got to know through maurice and he said oh, i like that song and he's about to do a solo record right yes yes phil collins was going to produce it yeah and we thought well let, uh, he said i like this song i'll sing it for you so um i found this demo i remastered it a li little bit because it was an analog demo we did at the complex a 24 track demo and philip sings beautifully, beautifully on it and i just feel like ending this show with this song because it just feels to me it resonates it hit me when i heard it again of the time that i came to meet you at um the complex where earth wind and fire worked i got to know maurice and the management there and what a feeling it was with earth wind and fire so before we play always what was it like diane i always find this is something I've, i'm so fascinated about what was it like to be around earth wind and fire when they were at their prime and you were at the management company well, I mean, first of all, it was magical, and all these guys were really nice guys, everybody in the band, uh, and joked around a lot, a lot in jokes, and you just felt like it, you were just honored to be there in their presence. And But they were just normal, fun guys, uh, great musicians. Yeah, that was magical, and, and you knew about their success. Yes. And when they had a hit record, it was interesting because with all the artists, but of course, Earth, Wind & Fire uh, were quite prominent in that, in that office. Uh, there were these sheets of paper that we had that we worked on every week. Mm, mm. Uh, there were like forms, and it was our job to uh, check out, sometimes ahead of time, what the uh, activity was, uh, like progress. billboard, yeah, 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 um, yeah. cash box, R&R right. uh, &R for R &R, radio yeah. and records, yeah, yeah. All, the, all the trades that had yeah. charts. And we'd have to go in and find all the charts, wh wh whether it was the pop charts, the R&B charts or whatever, and mark down what it was the previous week, what it was yeah. now or what was about to be, you know, like tomorrow it's going to be this or whatever it was and leave that on the desk yeah. of the manager. And um, wow. so there, there was always that going on. And when, when there was a number one, of course there's that. Let, Let's Groove was number one. Yes, right? yes. Yeah. I mean, this is a black band breaking it's, number one in the pop charts. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah, what can I say? Like anything like that. You just, everybody's elated. There's yeah. a, 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 an air of celebration in the office. I think what's wonderful as well, because I was coming into the complex and in Los Angeles, you drive down uh, the freeway to get there and the sun is going down and you walk into the studio and you can hear earth wind and fire warming up and uh, yeah. the atmosphere they were just lo lovely men they were all really lovely men good and guys fun yeah, yeah. Uh, even the road manager who was um uh verdine and <coughs> maurice's brother yeah uh and his sister worked there. his so. sister jerry yeah uh jerry white worked right down the hall from me she, you know we were she was coordinating the albums right? she 
coordinated everything. Uh, and then they had like a, a manager, a road manager, who was their brother. Great teamwork. You felt it with all the men. Uh, really yeah. good guy. And Verdine White, you know, as a ba- uh, as brother of Maurice, he was he, he allowed me. Just and bro- a lot of fun. Yeah, he talked right. <laughs> yeah, he's really really tall. Taller than me. And, yeah. yeah. And. Uh, and I, he would almost be standing on my feet, you know, looking straight down. He had down. this way of, even Brian and I joke about it, that he would come right up to you, stand yeah. on your feet, and look right into your and eyes. And he talks fast, you know, yeah. very, very sharp and fast and, yeah. you know, bouncy. And he had um, an incre- really incredible guy. sense of jewelry and uh, sense. So, so he would, of style. Yeah, altogether. perfume Fashion. as well. The perfume used to make my eyes water. Um, <laughs> but they used to turn up uh, Earth, Wind & Fire dressed really well. Yeah. Um, and even though they were going to sweat and play, uh, and the great thing about Earth, Wind & Fire, uh, and we're going to play Philip Bailey's demo in a minute, was that they did everything live. So when Brian and I walked into the studio, all the gear we'd seen at Wembley, all the live gear, was set up in the large room, and we thought, oh, my God. No, but Yes, another story, but we were actually in there with them playing instruments. And so you had the feeling that this was a... Um, we hadn't seen this in England. This was a band that was larger than life. Larger than life, And yeah. every performance was live. You know? it, was, it was such a, a dichotomy to, because they were larger yes. than life, and you were very aware of that. But on the other hand, when you were in the room with them when you were yeah. talking yeah. to them they were just so normal and so down to earth and Larry and Dunn the keyboard player Larry such, was fantastic such a, such a sense of humor Philip yeah. sweetheart oh, let's, let's get uh, I hope you can feel the atmosphere of what yeah. Diane felt and I felt and Diane was around it before I was and I always marveled at the atmosphere of um, brilliant music by brilliant musicians with great hearts and so when Philip Bailey um, decided to sing this song with us, and what a sweet man he was, uh, we were thrilled. Yeah. And I've just remastered this demo, and this is the demo with Philip Bailey called Always. Shine through 
that knocked me out actually i mean not that it was uh, anything but just brought back incredible memories yeah. uh, philip has such a beautiful falsetto and you know it brought back the memory that there was a, a gentleman called billy myers bill myers oh yeah and uh, we, uh, Diane, keyboard player. Yeah, and Di- and an arranger, and Diane. Yeah. He'd been involved with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Diane got me to meet him at his house, and I remember that he said, "I like this song always, and I'll arrange it for you." So all the strings you hear there, that's that's Bill Myers. That's right. Uh, doing it on he a had D- it all written out too. Oh yeah, yeah. He uh, he was professional, and a DX7 he played that all, all on, which is pretty phenomenal. I remember when you came back from meeting him at his house. Yeah. He had a gold record on the wall, yeah. and you were just like, "Oh my God, he." has a gold record on the wall. <laughs> That's so true. I remember <laughs> how long ago me and Brian just stood in front of it, you know, going like, oh, my God, look at <laughs> that. And, uh, uh, but he was a lovely man as well. Yes, I mean, was. everybody, including John Lind, the man I wrote lots yeah. of songs with, everybody around Earth, Wind & Fire, stemming from Maurice White, it came down in a pyramid, and I say pyramid in reality, that it was as a family that followed underneath him with great integrity yeah. and great soul. This is a great way to finish this show. I can't believe it. Uh, we're at uh, over an hour, and I've got to say, Diane, uh, I still haven't asked you half about what I wanted to I ask know. you. So um, we're going to have to well, do... 40 years of... Yeah, working together is a long time to come. Yeah, it's true, and uh, you, as you trigger one thing, another thing triggers. Yeah. So um, I think you're going to be the first person I've ever asked to come back to do three shows. I mean, Brian Fairweather did two, and uh, I was going to do another one with Trevor uh, from Qfield, but I think we have to get you back. So. Will you come back? I would be delighted. Okay, so thank you, Diane, and uh, we've got some more to talk about. So um, goodbye, everybody, and goodbye from... Diane. And Paige. Bye-bye. In the owl's nest.